Welcome to What Makes a Garden. My name's Ginny Blom and I'm a landscape gardener and writer. I released my first book, The Thoughtful Gardener, in 2017. My second book, What Makes a Garden, will be published in October 2023. For over 20 years, I've been making gardens for a living. I've been lucky enough to work on projects all around the world, collaborating with fascinating people across the fields of design, architecture, conservation and more. While we will discuss the practical matters that go behind creating and looking after a green space, this series is about much more than that. We'll delve into what it is that inspires us to work with plants, what it is that connects us to the land, and the complex constellation of ideas, experiences, thoughts and senses that make a garden. My guest on this episode is the photographer Tim Walker. Tim rose to prominence in the mid-90s with his highly imaginative and fantastical photographs, inspired by his love of fairy tales and a thirst for adventure. His unique images have been featured in Vogue, Vanity Fair, W, Love and ID, and his work has been shown in museums around the world, including the V&A and the National Portrait Gallery. Tim and I first met when we worked together on creating the garden for his home. We continue to tinker with it to this day. I'm pleased to share with you our conversation recorded in my studio. I just read that what we as human beings really lifts us and gives us longevity and health is chance encounters. Have you, did you yes, read about that? But the spontaneity of <coughs> going in and buying a pint of milk and having a conversation yeah. for, for two minutes with yeah. the bus stop conversations mm. and friendships where you go deeply, yeah. deeply into something. Uh, I used to connections, like that. it's yeah. human connection. Yeah, and that's why I did in Chelsea and Westminster Hospital where I do, I'm the artist in residence mm. and I do these gardens in the, in the hospital and people um, always want to go and die in them. Mm. You know, that, that's basically mm. what they're for, either relax. And there's something about the non-conformity of nature and mm. not knowing what it's going to do next or what the shape will be or the shadows. That, that, that actually, that relates to death. I think yeah, that a lot it's of, freeing, a, a lot of people that I've known who have been at the end of their lives for whatever reason, they, they suddenly nature becomes incredibly important. But yeah. I always remember going and meeting a friend of mine who was sort of terminally ill with cancer and he was going to die in a matter of days. And he was in a hospital and it was such an ugly hospital. And in the ugly room, there was a very ugly photograph of a bluebell wood. Yeah. And I, it was a really kind of like kitschy yeah. bluebell wood. And I said to him, I said, oh, God, you poor thing having to look at that. And he went, no, no, no. Yeah. I actually really like it. Yeah. It really helps me. Yeah. Well, my relationship to Chelsea and Westminster is that HIV ward that mm. was there because I spent most of the 90s in that ward mm. with various friends. And the, one, the brilliant thing about the hospital is it had these huge picture windows. Mm. So when you're in there kind of sick unto death, strapped up and much too young, strapped up to all this machinery, you'd get these big murmurations of, of starlings and things going past the windows. And it was like this mad kinetic natural world and I've never forgotten the impact that that was having not just on my pal lying in bed but also on me that you could look out of the window and see this stuff happening light and the clouds changing and shapes and birds and, leaves, and clouds because yeah. that hospital is very low level mm. and the whole of London in Fulham at that point is there's no high rise so mm. you get the whole sky so if you're up on the kind of fourth or fifth floor 
that was the magic of it. And I think that's what made me become a garden designer is really is understanding the need for that. And death. I'm going to tell you a story about death and gardens. This is a peculiar story, actually. But um, the dog that you met, yes. Stig, Stig, my dog, was very ill and very old. And I had, I knew he was going to die and he was yeah. at the end of his life. And I'd, he was a rescue dog and I'd had him for 15 years. And he was probably 16 or 17. And he, at the end of his life, he really looked like a sort of dug up fossil he was a very ugly dog in the end. He was. But I loved him so much. I loved him more, actually, when he was very, very ill and old. And he hated the cold. Right. Because he, do you remember he had that very short fur? Yeah. And he loved lying in the garden, the front garden outside the kitchen. And he would just lie in, so, in, in sort of 90 degree midday sun. He would be a mad dog and lie in the sun. Yeah, bless him. And pant. And I would often go out and put water in it. But he just he just totally loved being in this spot yeah. in the garden. And then when he was very ill, I just it was sort of November time. And I just thought, I really don't want you to die in the winter because you hate the cold so much. You love the heat. Mm. I really want you to get through to spring. And I had a premonition that he was going to die on a very warm, sunny spring day. So I just thought the dogs really got to survive until this foretold destiny that he will die in a garden and on a day that is appealing to him. So Aww. I took him a lot to the vet and then I was just keeping him going. And I'd be when he was very ill, I'd be like, come on, Stig, march on. <laughs> and then he got through the winter just. And then the first, it was a very cold spring this year if you remember it yes. was very cold until sort of like really all of april and then yeah. i think it was end of april the first proper spring day came and it was a sunny day and there was warmth and i came down into the kitchen and the dog was doing his death rattle pant and i knew that was the day he was going to die and Good i was Lord. like here is the day the dog's going to die I'm so grateful that I'm with the dog because it'd be awful if I was away, so on and so on. We get these sort of peculiar attachments with animals. So anyone that isn't a dog lover, it's... But so I took him outside in his basket and I put him in his favourite spot and he just lay in the sun and panted his way through the death. And then I called up the vet and I said, I think that the dog needs to be put down today because he's definitely going to yeah. die. And they were like, oh, we, he, um, we can't get there until kind of seven o'clock at night. Is that all right? And I said, that's fine. I'll just be with the dog, so on and so on. So then the vet turned up at seven o'clock that evening. The dog was still alive and conscious-ish. The vet came into the garden. She knelt down to unzip the needles to put him down. And as the dog just went, sniffed her, yeah. sniffed whatever the needles are. Yeah. And then he just carped it and died in front of her. Good Lord. And I was like, is that, has he died? And she's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's died. He died naturally. And then I thought, that's such a beautiful... He chose it. He chose it. Well, you both did. He, he, he must he, have hung on for you because... Yeah. Um, and I was just like so grateful that he died in his own way. And then... Um, well, they read our, our emotions very, yeah. very keenly, don't they? I mean, because to have him he put was down is such deaf, a perpetual he? kind of yeah. conundrum for any pet owner. When do, why do you choose to put a dog down? Or you can't communicate. And Anyway, so 
I had the premonition that he was going to die on that day. He did die on that day. And then I felt it was such a complete circle of a relationship with an animal. And then two weeks later, the whole, every, I was so kind of like, how is one going to respond to the death of an, when you're so close to a, a four-legged dog? And then everything was fine. And I felt that that was, had a great conclusion and so on and so on. And I walked into the garden one morning, two weeks or three weeks later, and it was kind of more like May time. And there was a patch, like a, someone had rolled out a blanket of yellow flowers called hawk something, little yellow flowers. Hawksbit. Hawksbit. Yeah. Just a little blanket. And it was exactly where his basket was. And then I was like, the Lord. dog did it. I knew when I looked at those little hawksbit flowers in the shape of where his basket was, the dog's, the dog's done that as a, some sort of communication. Little gift. Little gift, a little kind of like something said from wherever he's gone. And I just think it said to me, talking about death and dying and really kicking off this whole conversation in a really sort of morbid way. But Well, it isn't morbid. It isn't. There's because, something because, quite beautiful about that. And it goes yeah. back. And I thought, when I yeah. die, please take me in a bed and put me in the garden. Definitely. Let me die in the garden. Definitely. Let me die in a garden. Definitely. It's death that got me into uh, gardening full time. That's what changed my direction and got me moving into it because um, my three closest friends died of AIDS and Ian, my best friend, was a, a gardener. And we spent years, we were really good friends. We went to drama college together and lived together and then he went off and did all his stuff and we we never you know we were very very close and he became a garden designer and we I used to go up and help him at weekends messing around in this huge garden that he was making with his partner and then they both got really ill and I was involved with them very closely and then our Ian and my other friend Terry who was we were all the same age he got sick first and died and a horrible, horrible experience, actually. And um, I, I remember bargaining with myself, thinking, oh, well, it won't happen to Ian, you know, because it doesn't work like that, you know. So you have a sacrifice and then you don't have to sacrifice anything else <laughs> and this sort of weird stuff that goes on in your head. And then, of course, he got sick. And so we gardened like crazy and I could feel something passing between us that I was going to... T- take on this I didn't know what it was I couldn't articulate it I'd always gardened but not like a a thing and then he was in Chelsea and Westminster and he ended up living with me until he died and then he died and my two dogs died and my two cats died all pretty much simultaneously Mm. and I remember we had this really weird thing where um he was absolutely desperate to get down to Prospect Cottage. And it's funny because in your quote on the back of the book, you mentioned yeah. Jarman. And so I took this guy who was, you know, sick unto death. Mm. And I was going, Ian, you know, Derek's gone. You know, he's gone. He's not there. We can't, we're not going to go to Prospect Cottage and see Derek because yeah. he's gone too, you know. Mm. And I, how do you say that to somebody who's, I've got to go down and see Derek in this garden? So we got in the car, drove all the way down there, and then stood there. Is it Keith, his partner? Keith, yeah. yeah. And Keith was just like, effectively, going, what the fuck do you want? You know, Mm. fuck off. And we were just standing in this garden 
on that shingly desert, yeah. surrounded by these bright orange flowers and yeah. strangeness. And it was some kind of weird epiphany. It was the last moment that we had together yeah. outside in a garden, yeah. strangely going to see somebody that I couldn't get him to understand but wasn't was, there. was Derek Jarman still alive? No, he died. He, but but was he alive? In oh, the, he was in what he planted. Yes, he was. I mean, he way. he was very much still there. there. That was the weird mm. thing, you know. So it was the, the impulse was really. I can't. This is a very incoherent story because I've never really told it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, we actually it was like absolutely. I have to go. We have to go. Mm. We have to go and see Derek. We've got to get mm. down there and just stand. And then having the doors slammed where they'd never ever. Mm ever slammed before you know mm. though it was just a strange thing so we just stood I've got this memory like a photo of just standing looking at the cottage like full-on yeah with the rest behind us and these pl- flowers um all the Schultz here around us and then getting in the car it's... and going and it was some kind of coda mm. and then I just thought I've got to pick this up because there is something very you know everything in a garden is going through that cycle of blooming, growing, dying, dying, blooming, growing, dying. Mm. And we're all going through it too. And I just think it's the closest we get to that relationship with our mortality and in a good way, you know. I always wonder, you might be able to answer this, when you look at plants that they they sprout, then they bloom, then they die. Do they know that they're going to come back again? The ones that do, do they know they're going to come back again the next year? Do yeah, they I have don't a know. Consciousness? Like, do you do, know? Do we don't know? We don't in know. In terms of reincarnation, I, w- I just wonder. They do teach you patience. I mean, if you think about poppies, you know, they'll lie dormant, the seed mm. lies dormant for hundreds of years yeah and then it can erupt at any time yeah and you disturb the ground and up they all come it all sort of relates to me in some to reincarnation yeah conscious or unconscious i mean i i enjoy it because i that that was such a sort of traumatic event for me Mm. that to go into gardening it it gave me um perspective back you know Mm. and the great thing about nature is you we're all tiny in in, in its so, presence, yeah, yeah, really inconsequential. Yeah, and but you waiting out Stig's, you yeah. waiting out Stig's demise is a really lovely way to use it. I think all, you know? all I, you know, I think that your friends dying from AIDS and you going to Prospect Cottage of Ian, I mean, that's an, an gargantuan <clears throat> emotional trauma that yeah. made you become what you are, which is really. That's the positivity of the negativity, isn't yeah. it? When you, I think one has to see it like that, you well, know, because everything. The hardest things are the things that are the most giving. And you've got to go into them. Mm. I mean, I think the worst thing we can have are, are taboos around things that are difficult. And mm. I'm a kind of taboo buster for myself, you know. Yeah. I just think you've got to go Love into it. Love you being a taboo buster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. We're living. I think again, going back to Instagram, we're living in a very plast- emotionally plastic world. Mm. You know? It's not. These were the deep, deep, raw, horrible emotions of you know my generation. We were all in our early thirties when mm. it was going on, and it's like not what you expect to have happening to your friends, to yourself. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it, like going through a war. Really, I cannot imagine how. I've just actually for the project that I'm working on, I've been looking at a lot of that point in history and yeah. just thinking, I cannot imagine how 
brutal if you think of gay liberation was yeah. really in its infancy yeah. and it was just unfurling in its queer lib- liberation was unfurling and then that came along it was almost oh, like so mean it's so mean i mean we were you know we were at our kind of zenith i'd say in of of youth beauty mm. and promiscuity in mm. around 1978 mm. i guess and we just you know basically you could do anything you could yeah, everything was good for you. We were all having loads of sex with mm. loads of people yeah. and taking anything we wanted, doing anything we mm. wanted. It was absolutely amazing. And there was no kind of fashion police, really. I mean, I think punk made everybody a bit judgmental. Mm. Um, but before that, it really didn't matter. You mm. know, you could just do what the hell you like. We were having the most brilliant. I mean, can you imagine being at drama college in yeah. 1978? You amazing. Know, just being Liberation. absolutely nuts. Yeah. And... And then along that came slamming mm. into <laughs> into us, you know, so like, a, like a proper killjoy. And brutal. I don't think such a Debbie Downer. Yeah, the biggest. And I don't know. Downers. Oh, I don't God. know where that kind of um, untrammeled joy mm. comes from. I get it. Looking at your pictures. Oh, I'm you, very pleased. You, you. Get I don't. That. That's not a conscious thing. I think it's. Um, no, but you get delight into things. I, I, I you think get depth that, and delight into things, and I think that's a really rare. A rare commodity. Interestingly, I was talking with um, a lady who I'm going to take a portrait of her and she, we were having a discussion to get the collaboration going and she said to me, why, why do you, who are you taking the pictures for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I never thought about that. Who are they And for? then I just was like, I really had to think about it and I kind of half, it's kind of on my brain now because that's just before coming here. And I just think playfulness yeah. is a big, important, it's always been an important thing for me. Mm. Well, it's not really, I'm not taking photographs for anyone. Definitely not. I mean, I am taking pictures for myself in terms of passion and drive and enthusiasm. But I think it's more an excuse to be playful. Yeah. And there's a, a lot about a garden, talking about being in a garden putting something on in a garden, putting a play on in a garden. Yeah. Me as a child playing in the garden, that's what we did constantly. Do you think that's where it's all come from? For sure, it's come from the garden. Just imagination in the garden. Imagination in the garden, fairies at the bottom of the garden, yeah. mum telling us to go and play in the garden, mum telling us to go outside and use our imagination. Yeah. Imagination, creativity, playfulness all seem to come from the yeah. garden. Going inside was a formality and yeah. about an education that was the downer yeah being it? out was the <laughs> was the liberation yeah and i think that when i the very first i was telling you the very first pictures i took i went and took them in a garden because i felt in fact the first people i photographed i were neighbors to where mum and dad lived and we would just i looked they were old people they were yeah. beautiful old people who were probably in their 80s, and I always oh. looked at their gardens. Yeah. And they always had such um, beautiful, what you would call, I suppose, a cottage garden, quite wild gardens. And I would just photograph them standing in their flower beds. That's how I started. My first um, slamming into class consciousness was mm. when I was really small and there were some prefabs near... because. I grew up in the Midlands and and in a lovely Georgian town. 
but we'd been on the the sort of bomb drop for the firebombing of Coventry. Mm. And so they'd flattened, you know, people dropping their bombs early had flattened a chunk of the town and it had been replaced with these prefabs. And there was a guy there who used to grow the most unbelievable flowers in his front garden. So yeah. there was this tiny little prefab with these incredible flowers, like huge dahlias. And you know those mm. massive, you know when you're completely out of scale to the plant? Oh, I love that. And I love that. Yeah, and I've yeah. never really got over it. And I said to my mum, we were driving past, and I said, can I have a house like that? And yeah. she went absolutely nuts. And she said, they've only got a house like that because their house was bombed. And I was yeah. like probably about five and didn't really <laughs> know the consequences of what I was saying. But it was, it was about scale, really. And this mad, mad colour and height and this old guy out there pottering around. I, I wasn't um, taking photos, but I was just seeing it as a as an amazing endeavour. Yeah, think. amazing. Really? Those giant dahlias against a, build, a small building. I love them. Hollyhocks, yeah, all of that. Green and green and cream Venetian blinds, horizontal yeah. Venetian blinds behind yeah. it. <laughs> War office green, isn't it? Yeah. But did you, I mean... Did you always want to take pictures? Did, can I call them pictures? Photos? Call what do you pictures. call them? Call them pictures. Pictures is better. Um, photography was, I would see things or f more feel things that were very difficult to articulate or they could be ugly or they could be dark. And I would try and explain them. And then I found that actually making a photograph and constructing a photograph allowed me to articulate it clearer. So right. it was a... For me, photography was a form of communication. And do you map them out? Yeah, very much yeah. so. So it's sort of very early on, it was sort of more like, I think that's beautiful. So then you, it didn't look beautiful to a lot of people, like your prefab mm. building in Coventry with the dahlias. And, and then making a picture of it somehow proved that it was beautiful. I think I take a lot of pictures. Yeah. If I'm trying to look for beauty, I take a picture to yeah. look at that picture and go, oh, yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah. It's sort of like a mirror of me forcing something. I really want to see beauty in something. So I take a picture of it. Interesting. Yeah. And the scaling, because you do a lot of stuff with... There's a lot of scale play. In, scale in play. photography for me is you'd yes. have to speak to a psychiatrist about that. I think I like ext <laughs> extremes. I love... I don't like anything middling. I always prefer um, very, very freezing, freezing cold or, or yeah. roasting hot. I don't yeah. like tepid or yeah. medium. Or uh, Also, you're forcing a different, I mean, you are literally forcing a di different perspective, but where, where to look in your images mm. is really fascinating for me because they're all very i find them very nature driven i mean I know they're so and, it's so interesting that you've you kindly asked me to be here and thinking about it nature gardens flowers earth is such yeah. a constant i go yeah. back to it again and again and again and it's like um it's a constant surefire thing that i will do go back to because I don't know if I'm imagining this, but I, if I imagine some of your images that mm. I know, if they're inside, there's always either earth there's on always, the floor but or there's leaves. Always, there's always or outside, inside. There's always outside, inside. Always. And I've always found that. And I yeah. I love that because I feel like that's the true way that we live. And, that if mm. you, and actually old English houses, which I had a lot to do with when I was little, 
were more, you know, they used to have weather systems, you know, really, mm. and be absolutely freezing cold, and mm. as you're describing, or boiling off, yeah. and windows open, or no, no draft proofing, you know, I'm just, and you were constantly aware of I'm, changing seasons, of changing in the seasons, house. and within the house, yeah. Mm. I mean, we had furniture, and we, we would fight over one chair. Mm. that we could get in, me and my brothers, where we could get our feet off the ground so they weren't freezing. Yeah. It was the only one in the house that we could... Yeah. Uh, so it was like being in a den or in a cave or something. You know? Yeah, like, a house within a house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's kind of strange, isn't it? And I, the other thing I was going to ask you about, you've got a colour sense, which is very Yeah, colours colors are very interesting to talk about that in terms of photography because when I first started as a photographer I learned how to develop black and white film and I learned how to print black and white that was my first thing and um, I was so amazed at the magic of photography that you 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 can put this piece of plastic through a canister and put it through a a mirrored box and out, you know, then you put that in some chemicals and out come these little kind of um, tiny squares and you put a light through the square and then you see an image and then you put that piece of paper in water. It's all magic. You put the paper in the water and and an image comes up. And I would be doing that. I mean, I studied that for three years at art college and then spent sort of the next sort of five years I was living in a black and white world I was imagining things black and white everything was black and white and then my first ever commission in the world of the media they were like oh you know we love your black and white pictures but we don't want black and white we want color oh and I was like I can't do color I don't understand it I'm very scared of it and um so then I think I've spent which one tends to do, I don't know if you do this, you know, when you, you do one thing, then you have the pendulum swings and then you get obsessed about, so I just suddenly became obsessed about colour. Yeah. It was a very visceral, Yeah, I really remember that point. Yeah. And people would look at my black and white photographs and they go, oh, it's a shame that's not in colour. I remember I took a picture of some raspberries at a pick-your-own farm <laughs> and it was in black and white. And then they, when I was taking my portfolio around as a young photographer to try and get work, People go, it's a shame that's not in colour. And then I was like, God, I've really got to get with this colour yeah. thing. And yeah. I think now working with set designers that I work with and stylists, I've got a real... Because colour's all about emotion. Yeah. Well, you've got a very particular blue. I mm. think that blue's the hardest. Mm, blue's hard. Blue's, blue's really the hardest hard. colour. Red's really hard. Do you think? Red is the hardest one mm. to get right. Hmm. I've just made a red paint because I'm making this paint and I thought I've got to have a good red and it's a red from memory so I think I've got what are you what is the memory the red it's just red that Mm. I've seen somewhere and it's completely in my head and I work with a friend who's an artist to mix the colors up yeah and we've now managed to get it across making paints fascinating because you have Mm. to take it through um, the colour man, and mm. the colour man is a woman, right? Okay. Anna, colour woman. But she, she does it by eye. So they, I think they do later do it in a technical way. Um, but her, the initial mixing is by eye, and it's a red, well, red and blue, opposite ends, aren't they? But they are really tricky, and I've finally got so it. And I don't know why it's so important. These one or two colours, you know, to. 
mm. to nail. But your blue is amazing. Colour's very hard, really is hard. And I think it's it's in it's very hard because you see something with your eye, you take a picture of it, it comes out a different colour, then you try and print it back to that colour. Yeah. And it can be a kind of chasing rainbows situation where you never get it to what you felt yeah. it to be. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good analogy for photography is chasing rainbows. You never quite get there. It's a bit like gardens. I was going to say, it must be exactly the same. It's the same. You have a feeling. Your set making is quite similar, I think, because I was at drama college and I didn't act and I did do sets because nobody wanted to. I went to the the place of no competition because I can't bear competing Mm with people I'd rather just that makes sense I just want to go and do the thing that I'm thinking about quietly in a corner and I think this thing of making space and making atmosphere and making the color in in what I do is really important you Mm. know how do you lift Mm. the space to and bring bring the emotion into it really because then you step outside into something that's an emotional it is an emotional thing isn't Mm. it completely and yeah. I've tried because I was going to say your your images on are so I mean given who you who you've worked for and how yeah how you've done it they're so not you'd never know that they were a commercial anything ever no. you know they completely stand outside um, that world somehow is that just because of who you are do you think I think that um, yeah. I've always found commerce comes with a um, a parameter and I think that for me true kind of expression in photography is a parameterless place yeah and I've never I've worked 30 years as a photographer and n- no commercial picture I've ever taken mm. under the auspices of it you need to do this can you please do that I've ever been pleased with ever. no I I've, think it's why I avoid uh, commercial work yeah and it's not that I'm only working with people of of means, you know. I I just want to work with people who I understand and mm. who will understand me. Like, I don't know how even we got to together through and Alex. Ended. Oh, it's through Alex. Yeah, and doing your garden, but that was, you know, that's yeah. exactly how I want to do it. Like osmosis, we just, yeah. yeah, osmosis, and we find each other mm. and we click on some level. I'm sure which, people which think is... that you would have a very fantastical and elaborate garden but the marvelous thing about yours is it's all about privacy and uh quiet in in a most unprivate and unquiet place i think yeah i think (laughs) photography by its nature you're always with a lot of people all the time it's a very crowded um pub-like party-like atmosphere i think it should be a party atmosphere going back to derek jarman he always said every day you go to work you need to kind of throw a party yeah yeah. Never forgotten that. And I think that's very, it's a lot to be around people's energies. So a garden or the garden that you created is, is the, the privacy and the peace of it is, a, is, mm. um, is something that's important as a juxtaposition to the frenetic life of the photographer, I think. Well, it's the ultimate freedom, isn't it? You know, your bath, mm. for example. Mm. I spent hours and I spent hours in the bath um reading and uh meditating on 
existential <laughs> god knows what i don't know what but um yeah, staring at the sky yeah but you get in life you should only go to where you're happy you know yeah and i think yeah the bath bath and sleeping yeah oh, two yeah. great things That's very important yeah i'm just making my bath bigger yeah you are yeah yeah we decided it's not big enough mm. i want a whopper mm. and i'm going to do the garden i'm going to have a wooden bath outside so nice yeah so it's sort of silent you know it's a very different experience washing outside um you feel cleaner yeah than when you wash inside yeah it goes back to what we're talking about everything's better in the garden well it's the sun isn't it Mm. you know i I wrote a little bit in there about my mother-in-law who we we nicked in lockdown to Mm. come and live with us and she was german and she was just the nut brown maid and Mm. she just loved being outside Mm. so she was 90 trudy was 94 i think amazing yeah and she'd just sit outside and that was that lockdown summer was just incredible and she just sat outside all summer like an iguana in a in a seat in the sun just literally sucking up sun i've never seen anything like it she I was as happy as larry they say in <laughs> india that if you you can actually survive by nourishing yourself you you actually can eat the sun rays and yeah. you can be nourished in a way that can sustain your body. Yeah, and I believe it. And all sorts of crazy kids who sit under trees supposedly for three weeks without having eaten anything and they're just sort of soaking <laughs> up the sun. I, I think so. I kind of think there is something in that though. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's just something about being outside. I mean, I, I just go, I can, um, it's the one place I can switch my brain off and and just sort of go into this other parallel universe of not thinking but thinking and kind of experiencing things and moving them around and getting rid of crap that you don't want to have to think about really. And I think that any time I've encountered a hardship, I go and lie out flat out outside yeah. on the grass yeah. in the garden. And yeah. that's what I do. It's the most yeah. literally on that little patch of grass, I will go and lie on it. Do you remember that film micro was it microcosmos about the, did you ever see it? It was a meadow that they, right. it was filmed. I can't remember when it was done. Must have been in the 80s. Right. And I've, I was like that when I was a kid. So I'd lie for hours and hours and hours on my stomach, just peering into this the patch of grass that's sort of directly under your gaze and watching the ants and Amazing. all this stuff because mm. I, I love soil mm. and, and the relationship between the soil and the grass and the creatures running through it. And there's so much stuff. A microcosm is somebody filmed this meadow at kind of to get the detail macro 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 level yeah yeah really good so that reminds me of the beginning of david lynch's film blue velvet yeah opening credit when the guy has that he's mowing the lawn he has the heart attack and then the camera pans all the way he falls down to the grass and then i think the camera pans in on an ear a yeah. sawn off ear and then it goes an ant walks over the ear yeah. and then into the blades of grass and then the camera goes down 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 into That's the it. earth yeah and it's portrayed as a very dangerous and wild out of control full of beasties uh-huh. he's another one who wasn't scared did you ever see his student film no um with Oh God! What was it called? Called the grandmother. Okay. Oh yes, I think yeah. And she was a twig. She yes. was half really old woman. Yeah. And half twig. Yeah. 
and and the only word that they that was sort of muffled, you know, because he's deaf and all the sounds mm. really peculiar in all the David Lynch films because yeah. of it. And the only word uttered during the whole film is somebody going, mud, mud, like that. You should go so and watch it again. <laughs> in, in David Lynch's office, where he sits and yeah. works, there is a poster of The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. Is there? Yeah. Well, that's where we, that's it's, where we live. It's interesting that that's something that he's drawing on. You yeah, know, and that's something that you and I have talked about a lot. We and, have, yeah. And what you say, earthly delights. Very interesting. Well, earthly delights are as complicated as that Bosch painting, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, this is another thing going back to the world we're living in currently. I don't understand the sanitization of, of, of the right and the wrong mm. of, of everything at the moment. Mm. There's an awful lot of right and wrong at the mm. moment, isn't there? And if you look at the Garden of Earthly Delights, it's... It's, it's a compendium everything. of everything. Mm, everything which is what we are. Bestial, everything, yeah. you know, physical, emotional, revolting, mm. beautiful, everything. Which is what we are. Which is what we are. I think yeah. the mistake we're making at the moment in society is um, pigeonholing um, aspects of humanity into neat boxes. But, of course, we all change. We're so moving. Everything's... There's so many more infinite varieties of personalities, characteristics, yep. sexualities, peoples than we'll ever, ever, ever know about. Ever be catalogued. It, you c cannot be catalogued, <laughs> no. which is some sort of controlling nature, yeah. which we can't do. No. And I think that um, the Garden of Earthly Delights does encapsulate the infinite variety, yeah. the darkness, the light, yeah. the heaven, the hell. And we can all be all of it yeah, in well, the course we are of a day. It. And, you and know. it changes all yeah. the time. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the freedom that I fear we lose, is to is to honestly be like that, you know. Well, it's all, with wildness is so... Yeah. Yeah. Wild is a really important word yeah. in terms of yeah. humanity. yeah. It's so important. Yeah. And, if and we, we forget are animals. We, for, we, are, <laughs> we are all animals. We are. And we forget that, our wildness, and just wonder. That you, yeah, you know, I, I, like, I like wild people. Yes, and I was th when, we, when I was doing my psychology training, I had a very, very, very extraordinary teacher. I was very, very lucky. I was taught by a man called Ian Gordon Brown, and he used to talk about... You know, I think it's a Zen thing about the axis of the cross. You know mm. that you've got your your head in the heavens and your feet on earth, and and the axis is us traveling on the mundane plane mm. and trying to keep some kind of axis of balance in the even keel between yeah. all of it and how difficult it is with all the things that are thrown at us as humans, and that your spirituality isn't a separate kind of lofty thing. You know that it's just that difficult process of trying to balance all that we are with all that is around us and enjoy it and make the best of it and make the most of what little time we've got you know mm. it's a fascinating I think for me going back to the death thing for a minute I just want to feel like I've done as much as I can with the the gifts I've been given by the time I cark it and I I had a premonition I'm just going to lie down on on a Lie down on the ground like Stig. One like day. Stig. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what flowers will pop up when you're I don't gone. Know. 
I just kind of almost don't care. I like the idea of just sort of melting away <laughs> back into the earth. Dahlias. And, and yeah, maybe. Yeah, daisies. I'll be pushing up daisies. Pushing up daisies. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Tim, because thank you, first of all, for the nice quote on the book. That was lovely. A pleasure. And thank you ever so much for coming and doing this. Always a pleasure. I love talking to you. Not a problem at all. I loved it. Yeah, same. And I'm really excited to see what's coming up that you're doing that we're not allowed to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of What Makes a Garden. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it, leave a review and share with your friends. To find out more, you can head to my website, ginnyblom.com or find me on Instagram at ginny.blom. The book, What Makes a Garden, will be published by Quarto and available to buy online from all good bookshops from the 19th of October 2023. This podcast was produced by Danielle Radoichin at In Talks With, sound by Warren Borg at Wargie Productions, original music commissioned by Ginny Blom, composed by Peter John Vitesse and produced by Mark Fox at Re-Record. <laughs>